to episode 8 of the Adventures in VHS podcast, the podcast dedicated entirely to the lost format of VHS. If you're a new listener to the show, the basic premise is once every month I take a look at one of the ex-rental VHS classics from my collection and uh, take a look at it, take a look at the cover, take a look at the trailers, maybe even talk to uh, one of the people involved in making that individual film and just reminisce generally about my memories of it um, and my time spent uh, wandering the video shop stores of Manchester as a child looking for movies which I frankly had no right watching. Um, so for episode eight, uh, it's a little bit of a, uh, a little bit different, a little bit of a special episode. Basically what I would normally do is I'd normally pick a video from my shelf and I'd try and get in touch with the director or somebody related to it in some way and conduct a bit of an interview with them. But what I decided to do for this episode was throw it out to everybody else and basically find out what it is that you wanted me to cover. Uh, so I had a, uh, a bunch of videos uh, in hand and I put them all up on, uh, on my website filmrant.co.uk and I asked people to go over there and vote for the films that they wanted me to cover. Um, I asked you to vote either once or twice and uh, the top two movies would go into this very special episode which would be a double header. So the votes are in, the votes have been counted and we have two winners. I'm sure you've seen the title of the, uh, the actual episode so you'll know which they, those were. Uh, but what I'll do in just a moment is I'll go through each of the entrants and, and tell you which, uh, which movies came in which position. 
First of all, though, just a little bit of housekeeping. As the uh, the v- Adventures in VHS podcast is in support of the upcoming Adventures in VHS book, what I've decided to do is take these two movies that I'm covering in this show and put them out as individual chapters. So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to write individual chapters for these two movies um, and put the artwork along with them and everything like that and I will put those online for free. Now these will be two chapters that won't make it into the the book uh, when it's eventually made. So these are two exclusive chapters that I'm just going to put out on the website for people to check out. Hopefully if people like that then further down the line when the entire book's completed they'll be a little bit more likely to uh, to cough up the the pittance which I'll probably ask for uh, for for people to uh, to to buy the actual book. Uh, so that's the idea anyway the uh, the actual as you're listening to this the actual individual chapters aren't quite ready yet uh, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be going away and playing around with uh, bits of software and trying to figure out how to do that myself so it's as much of an education experience for me as well I will put those live on filmramp.co.uk at some point for you to download they'll probably be in PDF format so you can whack them on your iPod your iPhone your uh, your iPad your, your whatever um, other tablets are available of course um, yeah but you'll be able to check those out at your leisure um, so do keep an eye on filmrant.co.uk for that it's probably best to actually just follow me on twitter via at uh, filmrant and uh, you'll be the first to know once they, those particular uh, chapters go live and as I say they'll be exclusive chapters they won't end up in the book when it is eventually uh, published so yeah as I say then, I ask people to go to filmrant.co.uk and vote for uh, the movies that they wanted covered. Um, so just to give you an overview of all the movies that were listed, um, there was Wedlock starring Rutger Hauer. There was a movie called Catacombs, which is one I don't know too much about from the late 1980s, uh, which is kind of a genre movie. looks a little bit uh, like a horror, lots of monsters involved in that. There was Prom Night 2, Hello Mary Lou, which is a sleeve that I remember very, very vividly from my childhood. Um, It's not necessarily one that I wanted to put into the book, though, because it kind of relates to Prom Night 1, and that didn't really seem to fit with what I I wanted to do, so I put it in here. There was also Terrorvision, a movie from the late 1980s involving uh, satellite dishes and monsters. Uh, A movie called Witchboard, which I've read a little bit about in the past and was kind of curious to check out, but... Um, as I say, it's not one that, that that's another one that's not not going to make it into the book. I don't think. Um, and then I th- I bought a couple of Chuck Norris movies recently, a couple of Chuck Norris VHS tapes of movies that I hadn't seen. Uh, one of them was Invasion USA, and one of them was Missing in Action. So I, I only thought I thought it'd be better to just throw one of them in than throw both of them in. So I picked Missing in Action because it's got a better cover, basically. Um, and the final entry on there was uh, The Blob from uh, 1988, which is a remake um, of the uh, the the B movie classic. So. Yeah, in uh, in reverse order then, um, with a massive two percent of the vote uh, was Catacombs, uh, which I'm guessing is probably to do with the fact that nobody's heard of it because even I've not heard of it. I remember it kind of vaguely the cover, but I'm pretty sure I haven't seen it. So Catacombs um, was in bottom place, um, and next up from there with seven votes was Prom Night Two. Hello, Mary Lou. 
I did have a, cu- a, a little bit of feedback about that. There was a couple of people that said I should definitely check it out because it's it's worth a watch. I will definitely do that. I'll be watching all these movies at some point. And the next one up for there was Wedlock featuring Rutger Hauer, which just managed to take 17% of the vote. Next up from there, uh, with 20% of the vote, was Witchboard. Again, another movie that a few people said I would really like you to to cover this i really enjoyed it as a, as a kid and it's uh it's one that stayed with me so again i'll probably get around to it at some point and then the next one up from that was missing in action which got 22 percent of the vote however the top two movies the first one was terrorvision with 24 uh, percent of the vote and the clear clear winner was the blob which managed a massive 48 percent of the vote Quite a few people voted as well, and I'm really, really pleased with, with you know the fact that a few people bothered to sort of go over there and have a bit of a vote. Maybe I'll do this again sometime in the future, I'm not too sure. But yeah, that's basically what we have then. Our uh, two movies for episode 8 of Adventures in VHS will be Terrorvision from 1986 and The Blob from 1988. Um, when I found out that uh, Terrorvision was one of the entries... I, I I took the uh, I decided to contact the director. Um, I had had a little bit of a discussion with him once before. Uh, the director of Television, Ted Nicolau. I had had a little bit of email communication with him before, and we couldn't quite nail down a time when when he was available because he was he was busy and he was away on a shoot. So that kind of fell through the first time. So I just fired in it fired him over an email this time when when Television came up. And um, I'm delighted to say he had a little bit of free time available and managed to record a sort of a short 15-minute interview with him. So what I'll be doing is I'll be covering the Blob and I'll be covering Terrorvision, and then I'll have an exclusive interview with Mr. Ted Nicolau, uh, the director of Terrorvision. Um, so yeah, that's basically what you can expect. Um, the format of looking at each of the films, as many of you will know by now, is. I'll play you the trailer and then I'll take a look at the um, the actual video itself, the artwork, the actual release. Then I'll take you through the trailers that are on the actual videotape. Then we'll get into a review of the film um, and all that other good stuff. Um, at the end of the show, there'll be a little bit of feedback as well. But um, at this point, I suppose it's just time for me to say it's time to adjust your tracking and join me after the break for The Blob. <laughs> If it had a mind, you could reason with it. If it had a face, you could look it in the eye. If it had a body, you could shoot it. Now, man is no longer the supreme being on this planet. The organism is growing at a geometric rate. By all accounts, it's at least a thousand times its original mass. Nobody believes me about what happened tonight. What did happen? I want that organism alive. I think you pissed it off. Terror has no shape. 
Released 30 years after the 1958 original, director Chuck Russell's The Blob was a bit of a paradoxical affair from the outset. Uh, on the one hand, it was designed to be a pretty close remake of the first film, uh, which starred a young Steve McQueen as a sort of gee whiz teen who tries in vain to alert the, the stuffy old authorities about a shapeless jelly-like creature that's munching its way through a, a sleepy 1950s town. Um, but the thing is, on the other hand, uh, unlike its predecessor, the remake of The Blob from 1988 was made on a pretty tidy budget uh, by a major studio and in a bid to kind of take advantage of, of a kind of gooey horror that was doing pretty well for itself in the mid to late 1980s, especially in the UK on VHS. Um, the Blob was passed uncut for a theatrical release in the UK on the uh, in June of 1989, uh, which was almost a year after it had been in theatres in the United States. Uh, it opened to pretty mixed reviews, but more importantly, perhaps, it only managed to recoup 2.6 million of what was reportedly a budget of 19 million uh, over its opening weekend. Ultimately, it did manage to take in 8.2 million for total domestic gross. Um, but overall, it's kind of seen as a little bit of a flop. Uh, that you know, it was released to a kind of big noise, but didn't really deliver. So it's seen as a little bit of a turkey. Um, nevertheless, I remember the arrival of the film on VHS as being something of a big deal. Uh, it certainly was to our family. We'd seen plenty of trailers for it on other rentals in the run-up to its home video release. Uh, and around that time, I, I had already built up a pretty voracious appetite for, for horror movies, uh, genre movies, and, and magazines like Gorezone and Fangoria, um, which I was you know picking up on a monthly basis and stuff like that. So it's fair to say that I was pretty keen to check it out. Um, and I know my dad will have been at the time as well, so I certainly remember renting it. Um, the film was put out by RCA Columba, Columbia Pictures under the Brave World video label, uh, and it was marketed as, as part of a triple whammy of genre releases uh, at the time that also included Critters 2 and House 3, uh, both of which I can tell you you can expect to see in the Adventures in VHS book. Um, but that type of that type of marketing tactic was wasn't really unusual for the day. Uh, in fact, you only need to take a, a brief look through some old trade catalogues or free magazines right the way through the 80s. Um, any of the magazines that you'd either get in stores uh, like Video for You um, or any of, as I say, the trade catalogues, they would very often just whack a few titles together under the same category and advertise them all at the same time. Uh, more often than not, it was horror titles that would be sold like that. They'd be sold as sort of like, you know, the latest three releases from this label, and they're all horror, and they're all terrifying, and you probably shouldn't watch them. In other words, you probably should watch them. Um, so, yeah, it, it wasn't unusual to see movies uh, banded together like that, and uh, in this case, it was Brave World and RCA Columbia that were doing that. Uh, anyway, Brave World itself was a UK-based video distribution company, uh, it started out in the mid-1980s and it managed to keep on going until 1994. Uh, first of all, that was through a partnership with RCA Columbia and then later on uh, through Warner Home Video. 
Uh, along the way, Brave World Video also distributed films alongside a label named IVS Video UK. Uh, and that partnership gave birth to two of Brave World's most memorable releases. The first of these being 1987's The Lamp, aka The Outing, and the second being 1988's Uninvited. Um, two films that were memorable, uh, memorable because they are incredible and important films that everyone should see, not really, uh, but but memorable perhaps bef- because of the the lenticular covers that they were uh, that they were put out with, uh, covers that were picked up in ven- video rental stores across the UK, um, and, uh, and and are certainly very memorable. If you hold the two next to each other, not only do they have the lenticular sort of uh, the lenticular image on the front, they're kind of framed by uh, very colourful borders, and and those two releases at least were. Uh, were certainly memorable for that for that reason and uh, two releases or, or two films I should say that also sit on the shelf directly behind me so uh, yeah um, so that's Brave World uh, video that put out the blob under RCA Columbia Pictures in 1989 and uh, the question is then did the blob do any better on video in the UK than it, than it had already done theatrically in the US um, and is it a film that, that people remember fondly, or did it just fade out into nothing and kill the careers of everyone involved? Well, in answer to the first two questions, I'd say not likely, as it was vo- voted pretty emphatically as the number one choice for this show by Adventures in VHS listeners. Um, so I think that proves that it is sort of memorable and uh, was popular at the time, um, unless people just voted for it because they liked the name or they, they saw the trailer. Um and as far as what it did for the for the careers of its creators, again, I'd definitely say it's a story of success. Uh, writer-director Chuck Russell's next two films uh, would be 1994's The Mask with Jim Carrey, which was a huge hit, um, and, and also had a, a pretty hefty budget, as I recall. And his film after that would be 1996's Schwarzenegger Vehicle, A Razor. Um, you know, not one of Arnie's better films, I'm sure everybody would agree, but... Being behind the camera for an Arnold Schwarzenegger vehicle was still a bit of a big deal in 1996. Maybe not as much of a big deal as it as it was five years prior, but um, you know, it's certainly something um, I would class as a success. Um, the job, not the film. As for co-writer Frank Darabont, well. Um, need I say more? It's Frank Darabont. He's done pretty well for himself too, hasn't he? Um, so yeah, it, it certainly didn't damage the careers of anybody involved. Um, getting back to the blob uh, itself, though, uh, rather than the filmmakers, after this short break, I'll take a look at the 1988 Brave World RCA Columbia Pictures UK VHS release of the film, and I'll talk a little bit about the sleeve, I'll take you through the blurb, and I will uh, then pop on the movie, and we shall take a look and a listen at the trailers. Good evening, folks. Do you enjoy action and adventure? Romance and comedy? How about long strolls on the beach and a fine champagne by moonlight? Do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain? Or would you rather listen to some in-depth conversation about film where many timely and poignant observations and witticisms are made? Mo here from the Drunk on VHS podcast. And if you like any of those things, then I have some bad news for you. 
Drunk on VHS has none of these. But you should listen anyway. Because I asked him nicely and said, please. Oh wait, please. Tune in every Wednesday for new episodes exclusively at CouchCare.com. Bring the family, bring your friends. So with that then, it's time to take a look at the tape and the trailers. Um, so as I say, yeah, this is the blog from 1988 released in 1989 in the UK on RCA Columbia Pictures and Brave World. Uh, just to take a quick look at the cover, um, it's a blue box release, so um, very often the uh, RCA Columbia tapes would be red, uh, very sort of very familiar sort of red box, and the tape inside would have a sort of red bit across the top to identify that it wasn't a pirate copy. Um, this particular RCA Columbia release uh, on Brave World is in a blue box and the box is embossed across the bottom with the uh, the name of Brave World. Um, as far as the sleeve itself, the front is uh, a, a version of the, uh, the theatrical poster which is very very nice hand painted number. Uh, not too graphic, but it's basically a guy sort of screaming from inside the belly of the blob itself. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um, it's a nice cover, actually. It's bordered with the sort of red and blue lasers across the top that, that signified uh, RCA Columbia Pictures and Brave World releases. And obviously we've got the title in big, bold blue letters across the top. And then there is the uh, tagline... Uh, beneath the picture of the screaming dude which is uh, terror has no shape which isn't bad I suppose I mean it's I don't know it feels like there's probably with something as as um, uh, something as iconic as, as a blob that eats people a, a giant jelly I feel like they could have come up with something a bit funnier or cheekier but yeah terror has no shape um, it gives the feeling I would say the front cover it gives the feeling that the film takes itself pretty seriously. Um, does it? We'll get into that later. But uh, yeah, so the side panel is a version of the front image at the top with the blob written in blue down the side, the Brave World logo, the 18 certificate, and then the RCA Columbia Pictures logo. And on the back, we've got the uh, the big font, blue font again with the blob and three pictures, one of a uh, leather-jacketed teenager uh, with a, an incredible mullet. Um, the second image is of a gang of sort of scientific investigators, it looks like, uh, of the ilk that you would have seen uh, taking over Elliot's house in E.T. Um, and then beneath that, there's a dude melting and, and reaching out towards me as if to ask for my help, but uh, he looks like he's covered in phlegm, so I probably wouldn't help him. Uh, and then just down the right-hand side of that, we've got the blurb, the blurb for the blob, um, which I'll read to you now. The blob, a malignant, viscous, vicious life form from outer space is back. But this time, with Chuck Russell's Nightmare on Elm Street 3 direction, it is meaner, faster, more menacing, and much, much bigger. The blob has crashed to earth to ooze around the streets and sewers of Arborville, swallowing the townspeople and leaving a trail of stomach-churning carnage. Prepare yourself, if you have the stomach, to be blob-smacked. Uh, there's a couple of reviews beneath that, two of the kinder reviews, it seems, uh, as you would expect, I suppose. The first one is from the that bastion of journalism, The Sun, 
which says, a first-class horror treat. Bizarre rating, you'll be glued. Oh, bizarre was the, the... Right, okay, I think bizarre is the column. I like bizarre rating. Yeah, the bizarre rating is, you'll be glued. Brilliant. Um, the second one is that other uh, long-forgotten bastion of British journalism, which is Smash It's. Um, and the quote is, this film is quite simply one of the most smashing films in the entire universe, which is a really weird way to describe any film, let alone the blob. Um, typical box at the bottom, runtime approximately 91 minutes, and um, this is a stereo Dolby version of the film in hi-fi sound. And that's about it, really. Um, popping open the tape... Um, I can see that the uh, the big blue box is a Brave World uh, embossed cover, which is nice. It's uh, as I mentioned, it's got Brave World sort of stamped across the bottom of the front, and it's got the Brave World logo on the inside as well. Uh, so it's nice to know that it's the original box, which is always nice. And there's a giant Please Rewind tape sticker um, and Super Split Security System sticker on the actual tape itself. And I take it out, and the aforementioned. Uh, red-topped RCA tapes. This is indeed one of those very tapes, so um, I think we can probably expect to uh, to have a an explanation of how this this red piece of plastic protects the film from piracy. As was usually the case with these films, they would uh, put a little bit before the trailers about how, you know, if you did not have... <clears throat> if, you, if your tape does not look like this, then you need to go back to your... Uh, the person who gave it to you and, and shot them for being a pirate, basically. So I'm pretty confident we will hear uh, just such a thing in uh, in one minute's time. Um, so I've popped the tape in. Let's have a look at the trailers. There we have the RCA Columbia Pictures International Video logo. The red spine on the cassette you are now watching here we go with is the warning that I do uh, the information audio video presentation Have a listen to guaranteed this. by RCA Columbia Pictures Video. If your cassette does not look like this, phone RCA Columbia Pictures on 01-636-8373. Might be worth giving a ring now. Okay, wine Trove Entertainment Group. You don't have to be. I already know what this is from the music. This is my stepmother is an alien. Our first contact um, with an alien would be like. Yeah, I had a big visitor from amazing a thing in the late 1980s, partially because of Batman, partially because of Nine and a Half Weeks. Well, mainly because of Nine and a Half Weeks, to be honest with you. Uh, a movie I had no business watching, but um, luckily I had a. Um, or maybe a friend uh, called Andy from school whose dad had a copy and uh, I watched it that way um, so yeah I'm watching Kim Basinger strip at the end of Dan Aykroyd's bed in this trailer and um, it's fair to say that this scene is particularly how do I put this familiar to me make that what you will but uh, yeah let's just yeah, it, it, it's a great scene. My stepmother um, is an alien. And it's a terrible film. But one that I wouldn't mind re-watching just to see how terrible it is. And the trailer is basically just that sex scene. It doesn't really show you any alien stuff. It this just shows is you Kim Basinger looking like she's uh, getting naked. Uh, 
okay. John this Frazier. is a documentary about lots of things about boxers or boxing. And George Foreman. Not familiar to me. Five heavyweight kings of the ring come together for the first time to tell their own stories. I had to look him in the eye. But I was hoping he wouldn't look down because my knees wasn't stuff. See, this looks like a relatively Here interesting documentary. Oh, yeah, people fighting on talk shows and stuff like that. He's also got Talking Heads interviews with George Foreman. They're champions forever. And it's called Champions Forever. A milestone in boxing and video history. Doesn't feel like a rental tape. This. this feels like they're advertising something which would have been available on sale for. I could be completely wrong. Maybe it was a rental, but this feels like a feels a little bit like a, one of those sort of late night um, one of those late night adverts you see on a shopping channel for like box sets of DVDs and CDs and stuff. It feels a lot like that. I'm sure it's quite interesting, but oh, I think it's actually got the fights on it as well. See, this is very typical of the type of thing that you'd pick up in a in a charity shop, I think. I can imagine it being a sell-through video that's sold in its millions and, and it's probably taking up shelf space in Oxfam's up and down the country as we speak. Yeah, they did say high street retailers, so sounds like a sell-through release. Oh shit! Right, they're showing the cover of it now, and it seems kind of familiar. Muhammad Ali, Joe Fraser, George Foreman, Larry Holmes, Ken Norton, Champions Forever, the fights as you've never seen them. Harry Doyle here, welcoming all of you to another season of Indians baseball. Here's a list of players will be invited to camp. This, is. this guy here is dead. Cross him off then. We'd love for you to come to spring training for a shot at this year's club. By the way, you were with me last night. Who's this chick on top of me? Um, oh, that's Charlie Sheen with a really bizarre haircut. It's about baseball, so it must be Major League. I'm guessing. Is that Wesley Snipes? I've actually never seen Major League, and I'm going to fix that soon because I really should have, and it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, Wesley Snipes. Now I want to put together a team that will help us relocate to Miami. Yeah, I should really see this. We've been losing. What I want is for us to finish dead last. I actually haven't seen enough sports movies of this type. I know there's a lot of love for kind of baseball movies and football. Well, maybe I haven't seen enough of them. Yeah, that's not very good. One old chicken, just like you said. The double play. Excuse me. I have a much better body than she does. Is that Rene Reese? really does. And the big off. Back when she was a bit hot. Every time we win, we peel a section. Okay, so... Tom Berenger. It's probably, I'm guessing, well, I know it's Major League, but I'm guessing it's very typical of the sort of bunch of ragtag players that all come together and make it to the finals. Uh, as I say, it looks pretty funny, though, so I'll check it out. Corbin Burnson. Corbin Burnson. Get in there. And Bob Uecker, whoever the fuck that is. Major League. That ball wouldn't have been out of a lot of parks. Name one. Yellowstone. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, it's got Corbin Burnson in, so, you know. 
Uh, another JNM Entertainment Presents picture. I recognise that guy, this is Skin Deep, I'm guessing. I have actually seen the trailer for this before, I'm sure, but I just, I remember this trailer being on a lot of movies back in uh, back in the day, and thinking that it looked a bit saucy, so there's the, yeah, I probably wouldn't have been able to rent this, because it looks like it's about sex. Horror was always fine, sex was a no-no. Which is probably why I've grown up to be such a pervert. There you go. Yeah, I remember this trailer well. It's the trailer where, a little bit like the My Stepmother is an Alien trailer, you've got one sort of like comedy dude in bed watching somebody strip at the end of his, uh, at the other end of his bedroom. However, um, in this case, it's not Kim Basinger, it's a muscle woman. I'm not sure whether it's supposed to be sexy or a bit a bit homosexual or I'm not, I'm not sure. A little bit of John Hughes-esque music there, too. No, Zach wants his old life back. So I was about to suggest that we give it another try. Okay, so he's a guy who likes sex and having sex and with different no partners. However, he wants to get back with his ex-wife who's marrying someone else. John Ritter. But there is a guy! And he's a dad writer. Oh, that's quite funny. <laughs> a Blake Edwards film. Okay. God, I wish I didn't hate you That'll so explain much, the slapstick that, just, uh, that I just saw then. Yeah, it looks like there's some good slapstick stuff in this. Um, the bit where an entire sort of wall of water comes blasting through a, a living room and takes him off his feet that's great he's just been through some sort of electrolysis and he's freaking out on some stairs and it's pretty amusing yeah she checks in deep out if only because it's one of the films that I was denied as a youngster because of its sauciness and yet they allowed me to buy a copy of My Stepmother is an Alien knowing damn well that I was hot for uh, Kim Basinger makes you Next trailer, ah, uh, that's Mickey Rourke. He's been a cowboy outfit, but it's not Harley Davidson in the Marlboro Man, so. The fighter. You're Johnny Walker? A bruised heart and a battered body. You look like a cowboy. I like the music. He's got two lessons to learn in life. Yeah. I love the way you fight, John. Oh, Chris Walken. I never saw anybody fight like that. Well, the two lessons, then. How to take care of himself. How to take care of himself. You go back to where you came from. And how to take yeah, care of his family. And how to care for somebody else. All right. Yeah, really. Somebody else being a woman. She's so pretty. I have an idea. Alright, so Christopher Walken as what appears to be a bent um, a bent boxing promoter and Mickey Rourke as a boxer uh, amateur boxer who gets caught up in a diamond heist maybe or something I'm thinking Homeboy again I've not seen it but I know Mickey Rourke in a boxing movie uh, from the late 80s he calls Homeboy so let me tell you what you can't do Johnny Rowan you can't fight no more. Mickey Rock in Homeboy. 
Christopher Walken, and who's that lady? Deborah Fuhr. Uh, not a name I remember. Oh boy, yeah, I fancy that. Um, don't recognise the director's name, Michael Saracen. Um, Christopher Walken, I'm in. I've seen this trailer before as well. Uh, Miles from Home. Starring Richard Gere as a farm owner. What'd you do? He was angry about something. Sex criminals, are you? No. My husband I love that some Something woman just accused like uh, you boys did. Richard Gere of being a sex criminal. I know we're in trouble, but uh, it's not your fault. I don't think it's criminal it's to put uh, hands up your ass, it's, it's, it's my not normal. I'll worry about it. All right, get your hands up, officer. Hands up! Get your hands up. Okay, so it seems to involve Take his a couple of hicks, one of them being Richard okay? Gere. Why don't you come back with me tonight, Terry? Let's get you people don't I seem mean, to like them for some reason. Yeah, some newspapers. <sighs> you boys are bigger news around here than the damn weather. They've done something. I don't know what. People built this country. That's probably true, Frank. That was a long time ago, and the country that they built just doesn't exist. Is that a young John Malkovich? <laughs> That's a young Helen Hunt. Uh, right, so I think we've got Helen Hunt in this as well, and what looked like John Malkovich. Uh, but young, maybe it wasn't. There is no future. Kevin Anderson, Miles from home, from Cinecom Pictures. I don't fancy that at all. I couldn't really glean from that trailer. What the fuck? There's nowhere to hide. Alright, this is a bunch of different films being advertised, including the one I'm about to watch, which always irritates me a little bit. This is an advert for Critters. Uh, or Critters 2, I should say. And an advert for House 3. And terror takes a new shape as the blob. And the blob. So, this is what I talked about earlier. Um, the blob, Critters 2, and House 3, all on Brave World uh, and RCA Columbia, all being advertised under the same banner. Um, yeah, that, that trailer popped up an, an awful lot on these. Uh, on these tapes in the below uh, 80s, I've seen it many times before, and that's the Brave World logo, which means that after this short break, I will be uh, getting into my review of the blog. This is very definitely a late 80s film. The film kicks off with a very 90s style font, I would say, uh, in the credit sequence. I don't know if that means that it's ahead of its time by a few years. Probably not. But um, And uh, yeah, very, very soon after that, we're introduced to the idea of this sort of homespun small town that's under the threat of... Of, of something you know bigger and scarier than it, it would normally be used to and I think that's kind of an early indicator of sort of Darabont's presence um, it's certainly a welcome one uh, we're introduced to who uh, who is clearly the uh, the male lead he is a mullet wearing leather jacket wearing uh, motorcycle teen 
uh, with a sort of boyish innocence about his his face, um, which is fairly uh, fairly typical. We've seen this type of character before. He's the sort of local. He's the local boy who's a bit of an outcast. Um, and despite the fact that he often sort of falls foul of the local town sheriff, he he really is just a misunderstood kid with a big heart. And in his opening scene, we get to see him try and jump a broken bridge, but he sort of falls short. Uh, and as he's kind of doing that, we hear the roar of the crowd of the of the local football game that sort of appears to be ringing in his head and sort of cheering him along to, to try and attempt this jump. Primarily, I think this scene is is set up to give you the sort of punch the air moment that comes later but it also sort of shows that this is a kid who's sort of he's got a bit of a dangerous streak but at the same time it's it's a dangerous streak that comes with a certain amount of charm and you really sort of see the extent of that charm when the sort of grotty homeless guy meanders out of the the, the woods and, and comes over and sees sees him sort of crashed out on the floor and they they share a little bit of a moment and share a little bit of a joke and yeah i think you can just really tell that he's the misunderstood kid he's not really a bad kid and i think that's part of a an overall 1950s aesthetic that runs throughout the blob there's the whole sort of mistrust of youth and sort of an obsession with the the frankly small crimes that that teenagers commit uh, like smoking and having sex and i think that's absolutely something that the blob has and it's something we'll probably talk about quite a bit with uh, with television as well so, getting back to the story, the uh, the old homeless man who we've already briefly been introduced to is the first person to discover the space goo in a scene that really recalls the original Blob movie, but I also found it to be quite reminiscent of the d- discovery sequence in Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which is a favourite of mine. It's interesting, though, that the crack that the, um, that the goo is sort of inside... It's interesting to, to, to look at just how vaginal that crack is. The fact that you've got this 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 gooey cunt in the middle of the earth and it contains this lethal body-consuming goo and you get this old man who comes along and pokes it with his filthy stick and it attacks him. I think there's some pretty obvious sort of vagina dentata, demonic womb stuff that's very second year of film studies if you wanted to read that stuff into it. But it is worth pointing out because, you know, it's it's directly followed by a scene involving teens who are being caught who are caught buying condoms for protection purposes. And it's also worth noting that the the, the Earth vagina seems to have a very detailed clitoris of sorts as well, so Read into that what you will. After this scene, anyway, we cut to a family sequence, uh, or at least a mother and her son and her son's friend. The son and the son's friend are sat around the dinner table talking about the the film that they plan to watch at the movies that evening, much to the mother's chagrin. And at which point, I'm transported to a future where I have a very different conversation with my kids. A garden tool mask? It's your basic slice of dice. Your basic what? Well, this guy in a hockey mask, he chops up a few teenagers. But don't worry, there's no sex or anything bad. Go on, son, enjoy yourself, and take this hip flask with you for the journey. Anyway, uh, there's a quick that guy moment um, after this scene involving Jack Nance, who is uh, the Twin Peaks actor who also popped up in Ghoulies on a previous show. Uh, And then the sort of horror starts to kick in. We're... uh, we're into a sort of isolated incident section of the film at this point, uh, with individual sort of moments of horror cropping up here and there. Uh, and the finger of blame is 
obviously being pointed in the direction of the misunderstood leather jacket mullet teen, uh, who by this point we have learned is named Brian Flagg and is played by Kevin Dillon. Uh, now, Kevin Dillon is probably familiar to a lot of people from his more recent TV roles. Uh, I suppose most notably he plays a character called Johnny Drama in Entourage. But before that, he's he's had more than his fair share of roles. He played the uh, the drummer in The Doors, John Densmore in the, the 19... 19- 1991 uh, Oliver Stone biopic of The Doors. Uh, he was also a bunny in uh, Oliver Stone's Platoon back in 1986. But I think with The Blob, you, you really can't help but feel that this was probably meant to be the role that sort of put him on the map, which obviously it, it kind of didn't really. Anyway, by now it's been established that he's the male lead and he appears to be, to the local police at least, connected to what's going on he's the guy who found the tramp that tickled the clitoris that awoke the blob and he's had a bit of a face-off with the uh, the local jock quarterback who got killed and of course he's wearing a leather jacket so that means he's probably guilty of something and so up until this point the goo itself has been happy to to wander about taking off one per taking sort of one person at a time and allowing the special effects team to do their great sort of individual pieces of practical effects work so there's a, a gooey hand there, a decayed corpse there. Uh, but you do sort of start to feel that things are building up. Not only is the creature getting bigger and faster and more hungry, but the effects are just sort of are just getting a little bit more elaborate with each sort of uh, with each sort of kill sequence. So yeah, the, as I say, the, the the beast is getting hungry and it needs to be fed. So this being a, a 1950s pastiche of sorts, where's it going to head next? Well, there's bound to be some horny teens up at Makeout Mountain uh, that are looking to get sucked off. So um, yeah, just head up there. And of course, when the blob gets there, uh, there are there's Scott, uh, who is uh, the lad who has a portable bar in the boot of his car, and um, a, a drunk girl who he's taken up there, who's played by 80s and 90s playboy bunny Erica Aleniak. Uh, she sat out in the front seat, and obviously she doesn't realise just how moist she's going to get in the next five minutes. Bum bum. Um, I mean, seriously though, this this scene is probably made more notable for the fact that it was one of the few times in the late 1980s that you didn't get to see Erica Oleniak's tits. Say, young lady, I think that you're about ready for another one of my famous cherry coolers. I think I've had enough. Nonsense, you've never had enough. Yeah, leave her alone, bud, she's had enough. Uh, But no, he decides he's going to try and cop a feel whether she's conscious or not, something which I'm increasingly starting to to, to feel was, was fully acceptable in the 80s, apparently. And of course, she implodes and turns into goo and uh, and sucks him off, only not in the way he was hoping. So, all this time, there has been uh, another character in the background, and we start to see her kind of come to prominence uh, uh, around this time. Uh, we have a sort of female character who was originally the jock's girlfriend. She's the... Uh, She's the sort of uh, the, the the attractive, perky uh, teenager who's di- dating the high school quarterback, and she's played by Saw regular Shawnee Smith. And uh, in this movie, her name is Meg. Yeah. So as I say, she's a bit of a goody two shoes, and uh, her boyfriend has just died. So she's kind of got a reason, supposedly, to kind of to go out and sort this situation out. And she bails Brian out of prison mainly because she is one of the only people that knows that, you know, strange things are afoot at the Circle K. I need your help. For three years in school, you haven't said shit to me. 
Now all of a sudden, what? You need my help and we're best friends, right? Nobody believes me about what happened tonight. What did happen? You were there. You saw. All I saw was an old man with a funky hand. The thing on that man's hand killed him, and then it killed Paul. And whatever it is, it's getting so them two buddy up and run around trying to figure out what's going on uh, while the blob just goes from place to place sucking people off who didn't quite want to be sucked off in that way and it's sucking people off down the plug hole it's sucking people off in phone boxes it's already sucked off a tramp and a couple of high school students so it clearly needs to be stopped we can't have all this sucking off going on in, in a small town now that should really be the job of the local sheriff plus his one deputy and his six volunteers but frankly he's about as much use as a one-legged man at an ass-kicking contest one deputy and six volunteers i feel like the one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest so the blob heads off to the local diner and that's where the teens are um our hero and heroine they've been having a chat there and getting to know each other a little bit better and once the blob turns up they hide out in a freezer in the back room um, and they seem to discover that the blob is not too fond of ice after it touches a bit of ice it doesn't like it and it scoots off and is then seen by the local vicar who uh, discovers a frozen piece of it and puts it into a jar for some reason i'm not sure why uh, i'm not sure why there's a jar right next to him conveniently there just is and he decides that he wants to keep a piece of it so you'll just have to deal with it also at this point a government sanctioned biological containment team or microbe hunters, if you prefer, shows up. We're a government-sanctioned biological containment team. Biological containment? We're microbe hunters, young lady. That's right, young lady. So the team are led by the old guitarist guy who helps Ralph Macchio become a better guitar player than Steve Vai in Crossroads. And um, at first, it seems like he's a decent bloke. He seems like a lovely old fella. It doesn't take long for you to realise, of course, that he can't be trusted. He certainly can't be trusted if you wear a leather jacket and, and rock a dangerous mullet like our boy Brian. I think this whole thing sticks. You're quite right, Brian. All hell is breaking loose across the town and we get what is, for my money, one of the best scenes of the film and one which, again, is pretty directly referencing the 1958 original, only updating it with, with somewhat higher profile effects. Uh, and that would be the cinema scene. The local cinema comes under attack by the blob, while the kids we were introduced to earlier are watching the sort of hockey mask massacre flick that they were so pumped about. Now, you actually get two clips of this particular movie within a movie. And I have to say, I'd watch it, but then I'm watching the blob, so I'm not too sure how much you can take from that or, or how much that that accounts for. Anyway, the theatre comes under attack, and for any one of you out there who hate ignorant chattering cinema goers as much as i do there is a sort of wonderful moment of zen in which the the talkative hick who's been ruining the horror movie he gets you guessed it sucked off in his seat uh only not the way he yada 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 so yeah all manner of hell is breaking loose we discover the microbe hunters are affiliated with the military the bastards and are looking to contain the blob um which obviously they are partly partially responsible for creating by having some crazy thing out in space and what do they want it for they want it to fight the russians our little experimental virus seems to have grown up into a plasmic life form that hunts its prey a predator is fantastic sir the organism is growing at a geometric rate by all accounts it's at least a thousand times its original mass 
This will put U.S. defense years ahead of the Russians. The blob moves into the sewer system, and typically it's the same sewer that Meg, Brian, and the two kids from earlier, who luckily aren't named Peter and Stewie, uh, have also found their way into. And that sets everything up for kind of a finale as the microbe hunters look to, to blow everybody up while down in the sewers. Um, they manage to escape in a very explosive moment in which Brian gets to use a bazooka. Um, and it's it's all that sequence that follows there where there's kind of a showdown between the microbe hunters and the teenagers and the local cop is all sort of soundtrack with this sort of lovely, mildly John Carpenter-esque synthesizer score, which I thought was a lovely little moment. At which point the blob decides it's not going to hang about in the sewers any longer. It's going to take over the city um, and everything starts to explode. People are dying cats and dogs living together but fortunately Meg is able to blow up a, a, a liquid nitrogen truck which explodes all over the blob and turns it into what looks like a slush puppy that's been left spilled on the pavement overnight uh, on an icy night. There are certain things you would expect from a movie of this nature a late 80s horror movie they tend to do sim quite similar things and in the sequence that sort of follows the uh, the death of the blob and the resolution of the whole movie of course you get the sort of it might not be dead yet ending um and these are endings that i do actually love they are endings that kids my age would often use as hard evidence that a sequel was being made uh, which always used to really annoy me but yeah in 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 this case it, it feels like if there ever was going to be a uh, a sequel made to the blob it probably was never made just because this film didn't do very well the day of reckoning how far off soon madam soon or maybe not so soon um so overall then i would say the blob is quite a bit of fun unfortunately the effects haven't aged particularly well some of the practical stuff is is still highly enjoyable and highly you know is, is still charming but there is some sort of green screen stuff that um, green screen blue screen stuff that that really doesn't work very well now. It looks quite shonky. But there are elements of that sort of shonkiness that I think makes the blob worth a watch. I love the 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 sort of 1950s B movie vibe that the whole thing has, and I think that helps make the moments of dodgy green screen seem a little bit more bearable. I also like how it, it gives a, a little nod to the original from time to time. There are shots and moments that have pretty much been recreated inch perfectly from, from the original. Um, and I think you can definitely feel the, the Frank Darabont touch in the whole thing. It is a relatively stylish and well shot little number um, that certainly feels of its time in terms of genre cinema on, on VHS. So... In general, I would say check it out if, if, if you want a, a fun, uh, silly 80s popcorn piece of fluff. If you do want a copy of the VHS, there are a couple floating about on eBay at the moment. Uh, alternatively, you can pick up the DVD release pretty cheaply. But beware, it has an incredibly ugly and equally cheap cover. So, obviously I'm going to say it, but you're probably better off with the VHS. I will not you're seeing that kind of trash, and that's final. Do you understand? We're gonna have our TV party tonight. All right. We're gonna have our TV party tonight. All right. 
1986's Terrorvision was the second most popular movie on the Adventures in VHS poll, voted for by you, and uh, it this managed to scoop up 24% of the vote, behind the blobs 48%, and it just about beat Chuck Norris' action and missing in action uh, to the finish line, which, which could only muster 22%. Um, so Terrorvision was our second place movie, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about it now. Um... Obviously, the uh, the results of the poll show that it seems to be a popular choice. Um, that's despite the fact, though, that it that this wasn't always the case. Um, back in the mid nineteen eighties, it was little more than a poster idea that was put together by uh, Uber producer and VHS era legend Charles Band. Uh, before director Ted Nicolau was given the chance to turn it into a feature feature length film. Um, he was brought on board to write the script and direct the movie, uh, whereas Empire International Pictures, which was Charles Band's production company prior to his arguably more more well-known label, Full Moon Pictures, uh, funded the project. Uh, but unfortunately, it didn't really do that well uh, overall. It did get a theatrical release uh, across something like 250 screens, in the US at least, uh, but it only made around three hundred twenty thousand uh, dollars, and it wasn't too popular with the critics either. Um, to this day, it still has a zero percent rating on Rotten Tomatoes and does appear on a few, uh, a few different you know worst movie lists. In June of nineteen eighty six, though, uh, in the UK, it was passed uncut by the BBFC for a VHS release. And it was put out into the world by Entertainment in Video, where it would start a brand new life and build a little bit of a cult following from there. It's a film that I remember uh, very well um, from the shelves of, uh, of my local rental store. And I remember the quite terrifying um, artwork it's, again, it's the artwork that left an, left an impression on me. The movie I don't remember too much, but I remember the artwork and I remember seeing the movie and I remember thinking that it was a lot more serious than uh, than I think it actually it is, you know, viewing it with, uh, with adult eyes. 
So it will certainly be interesting to uh, to take a look at it. Um, since it was uh, put out into my local video stores, though, it's uh, it's actually never been made available on DVD. Uh, however, a widescreen version of the film has been shown on Showtime in the US, uh, and it's also made an appearance on Netflix before now. If you do want, want to get hold of a copy today, though, uh, coincidentally, it comes to DVD and Blu-ray in February uh, through Shout Factory, and that's as part of a double feature with, uh, with the video Dead. Sadly, it's a Region A disc, um, and there aren't any plans that I I can see for a, a UK release or a, you know a European release. So if you are desperate to see it, it might be best if for you to pick up a copy of the VHS. Um, which brings me nicely on to the next section um, because I have picked up a copy of the VHS and I hold it right here in my hand. So we'll take a look at that first of all. Um, this is a movie that I bought probably for about, well, it was it was quite cheap. It wasn't an expensive purchase. I bought it purely because I remember it so well um, and was keen to sort of check it out at some point. Um, the cover art, as I say, is extremely dramatic. And, and to glance at it, you would probably think it was kind of serious. I certainly did uh, back in the day anyway. And um, when I bought the this particular copy... Um, it didn't come in the entertainment and video embossed box. However, it is now housed in an entertainment and video embossed box because um, I picked one up and, and slipped it into one, basically. Um, so, yeah, let's take a look at it then. So the front cover, which you uh, should be able to see uh, yourself if you do a quick Google, or it'll also be on filmland.co.uk, I would imagine. Um, as I put this post up, and across the top we've got TerraVision with the T and the V in enormous letters, just to make it absolutely clear. Um, I have seen other versions of this cover where the T and the V are in, uh, emboldened in red, um, just to you know to get the message across that uh, that little bit more. And then below that we have the image of a very dramatic sky with a uh, satellite dish front and center. Um, and the satellite dish appears to have sort of ghostly tentacles um, emanating from behind it and there's lightning that's striking the satellite dish and the main uh, feature of the image is just a giant alien looking eye that sits right in the center of the, uh, the, the satellite dish. Um, the dish is perched up on a little grassy knoll um, and below that we've got the, uh, the tagline which it's a bit of an awkward tagline, if I'm if I'm being honest. It doesn't tell you too much. Um, the do-it-yourself 100 picks up things from dot 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 everywhere. Now, I mean, I guess you could put two and two together yourself, but there's you know the do-it-yourself 100. That's that doesn't tell you what like you don't really know what that is. It should you know if it was maybe called the 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 the, the Sato dish. 3000 or something you might sort of uh, be able to glean from that that it's that the do-it-yourself 100 is, is is in fact a satellite dish that they're talking about but uh sadly not um so to turn to the sides it's um a lovely kind of lilac color uh the television font down the side a um fontless version of the poster on the side and the uh, the old school 
entertainment in video logo across the top. It's rated 15, uh, which is the uh, the BBFC rating that was given back in uh, June of 1986. Um, and if we turn to the back, there is a selection of lovely graphic photographs. Um, I won't go through them all, but uh, suffice to say, you do get lots of shots of the monster um, that features uh, in the film, lots of close-up shots of other sort of gooey monsters and stuff like that, um, and people looking terrified. There's an old man who looks like he's about to get eaten, there's a young boy who looks like he's about to get eaten, and there's also a man that looks like he's about to get There's a lot of people that look like they're about to get eaten. There's a woman that looks about like she's about to get eaten as well. And I will go on to the blurb then at this point. The Puttermans are just a typical American family, and the only thing they are missing is a pet. Have they got a surprise? You see, Stanley Putterman's new satellite TV has just gone on the blink, and it's drawn in a creature from outer space. Like all new pets, this one's causing a little trouble around the house, and he's eating the Puttermans out of house and home. In fact, it seems like this creature will eat anything. Well, just about anything. Now it's up to the kids to break the creature of its bad habits, but he's not responding well to discipline. The Puttermans finally got themselves a pet, but never even had a chance to give it a name. Uh, then there's some details below that about the special effects and makeup design, uh, which uh, in this case were put together by... Uh, John Buchler and the Mechanical and Makeup Imageries team. Um, and then runtime underneath that is a very short 83 minutes and the little labels at the bottom tell us that it's distributed by CBS and licensed for private home exhibition only. So that's not too much, ex it's not too much of an exciting cover. The visual on the front is interesting, but um, that's about it. it. One interesting thing is that the uh, the blurb on the back does sort of focus on the uh, the idea of this creature as a bizarre pet, which um, is not how I remember the film at all, but we'll see how they go along with that. Um, and we're just going to open this up now. Um, I'm opening this up, and as I say, this is an embossed uh, entertainment in video box. Um, and the uh, quite sexy entertainment in video television label on the tape is fully intact and in general the whole thing's in pretty good shape really so let's pop it in and take a look at the trailers okay so what we have here is the uh, the silent entertainment in video logo for your future entertainment from entertainment in video and we're on to the first of our trailers an atlantic releasing corporation production for michael j fox okay this is team wolf pretty clearly pretty quickly this is team wolf um his voice is changing a movie i've seen a billion times and i'm probably sure you have too um didn't know it was put out by Entertainment in Video though. He stopped being. Although actually, I did have a giant poster next to my bed for Teen Wolf 2. Um, back in the day, I used to uh, always go to the video shops and ask them if they had any posters that they didn't want. And sometimes I'd get an incredible haul, and other times I wouldn't get very much at all. And um, 
yeah, I picked up the uh, the, the um, Team Wolf 2 poster, uh, an extra large one, really huge one that covered a large portion of my wall space for, for quite a while. Uh, although I don't actually re recall ever having watched Team Wolf 2. Did you change your hair? He's got class. Wolf present. So yeah, it's the Michael J. Fox movie you remember and love. Uh, everybody loves Team Wolf, don't they, really? I'm sure everybody does. He's a wolf in teens' clothing. He's a wolf in teens' clothing, that's a nice line. is his knife to howl. Teen Wolf, a new comedy with Michael J. Fox, star of Back to the Future. Fabulous. What's up next? Vietnam. Vietnam. Ten years after... The war is officially over, but the fight for freedom continues. Fuck. So the war is over and there's just Americans going blowing the shit out of Vietnam anyway by the looks of it. That blinds the truth is about to be ripped apart. I feel like I'm waiting to see an action star of some description here. Is, is this something with Chuck in it or...? It's not something with Arnold in it, we know that much. Who's that guy? Alive, at last, taste freedom. Yeah, this is very low-rent Rambo stuff that I'm seeing right now. Cobra mission. Cobra mission. And we don't have uh, one single star, we have four men of the Cobra mission, one of which is Tom Berenger. Uh, one of them is Sam Neill, I think. Looks a bit like Sam Neill, anyway. Um, so yeah, these are four American soldiers, by the looks of things. Four men who would change the meaning of bravery, apparently. They will bring their own kind of justice. Oh, I love it when people bring their own kind of justice. They will bring their own kind of sandwiches. They will bring freedom. Cobra mission. Cobra mission. The war is over, but the fight will continue. That looks terrible. I'm sorry. In a distant galaxy, the darkened caverns of a cruel oh, world. Oh, this is an animated movie. What's that? Fantastic adventure. A quest to free a world from slavery and the universe from tyranny. A quest for truth. I don't recognise that. This looks just like one of those weird animated movies that I could easily have loved. Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin. Okay, I think I vaguely remember this. It's very Star Wars-esque anyway. Uh, it's basically an animated Star Wars movie. It looks alright though. Thousands of years ago, on some obscure planet, I fancy this. Was the first inorganic mind to beat man. I mean, this is not music for fuck's sake. We'll be calling checkmate. In the last such game, the humans and their kind will ever play. It's got a, a spaceship that looks vaguely like a penis. It's got um, a comical animated robot sidekick, which is the staple of all. Uh, sci-fi comedy. Yeah. 
and there are individual shots actually of, of spaceships going off into the distance and being shot from behind that look very, very Star Wars-esque to be fair. You are but a weak piece of flesh. And it stars a kid called Kaka. Again, beautifully animated, looks really nice. Um, I can imagine, I can imagine this is probably on a lot of people's um, nostalgia lists. I, this is probably one of those movies that a lot of people out there have had, I should say, on VHS and probably watched it to death. And I would definitely check this out. I am currently writing down the name. Um, just so I remember to pick it up because yeah Star Chaser The Legend of Orin that looks decent the fantasy experience of a lifetime wow that's quite a promise okay this will probably be the last trailer this is a house this is a house no one should live and this is probably house I'm guessing Yes, it is. So, this is House, um, the first movie, which is a slightly comedic, um, well, it's fairly comedic horror movie uh, from the 80s, which spawned a number of, uh, of sequels. The film will appear in Adventures in VHS, the book, um, as part of... Um, a trilogy of films, basically. There, there were more. There were more than three house films, but I will be looking at just the three individual films. Um, and having now seen all three of the house movies, I will probably be talking a great deal about the, the differences between the three films. Um, the first movie is certainly the best one, I'd say, possibly. Although I'm kind of a fan of the third one, but for different reasons. Um, the yeah, the first movie is slightly more serious, maybe than the second one. Uh, there are comedy elements, and it's a lot of fun. The second one is very silly and almost like a family adventure movie, and the third one is like a completely different film. It doesn't even belong in the series, um, which probably explains why it was originally not supposed to be a house movie it was just put out with the house name because it was a recognisable brand by that point uh, but I'll talk more about that in the book we're on to the next trailer and this is uh, another movie that I'm familiar with which is Transylvania 6 5000 which is a relatively a relatively funny little uh, Jeff Goldblum um, vehicle from the um, mid 1980s, which I watched recently on Netflix, not on VHS. Um, and it's yeah, it's basically a Jeff Goldblum and Ed. What's his name? Ed Begley Jr. That's it. Um, they go off to Transylvania to investigate stories about Frankenstein and chaos ensues. Frankenstein, Dracula, etc. Um, it's all a lot of fun. And that sound 
is the entertainment in video logo, which tells me that it's time to check out Terrorvision. So after this short break, you'll hear my review of that film. Intellectual decay! Turn it off and rot your brain! The Puttermans are just a typical American family. The only thing they're missing is a pet. But have we got a surprise for them? You see, Stanley Putterman's new satellite TV has just gone on the blink. And it's drawn in a creature from outer space. Like all new pets, this one's causing a little trouble around the house. And he's eating the Puttermans out of house and home. In fact, it seems like this creature will eat anything. Well, just about anything. She looked right at my studs and cooled out. This dude's into metal! Now, it's up to the kids to break the creature of its bad habits. I said shut up! But he's not responding well to discipline. Please, I mean you no harm. I am Pluthai, here to save you. The Padamans finally got themselves a pet, but they never even had a chance to give it a name. Terror Vision from Empire Pictures. Now, first of all, I have a bit of a confession to make. Uh, I was not actually looking forward to re-watching Terror Vision. Uh, I had seen it once before, uh, back at a time when I had organised an interview with its director, Ted Nicolau. However, that interview didn't quite come off at the time as, as he was called off to a shoot. So when I decided to put the film into the, the poll and ask people to uh, to vote on a number of different films, I really wasn't keen on the idea of it emerging as one of the winners because I knew that that would mean that I had to give it a second watch and I hadn't really enjoyed it that much the first time around. <laughs> Well, do something, you ugly bastard! Man, this is the dumbest movie I ever saw! What a bunch of crud! But you voted for it, and when you did, I fired Ted a quick email, and as luck would have it, he was available. Uh, so I decided it was time to give the film another shot, and try and see exactly what it was that, that, that people liked about it, and the reason that people wanted it to be covered on Adventures in VHS. So, it was with an admittedly heavy heart that I popped the tape into the player. Uh, but I can honestly say that on this particular rewatch, it did occur to me why I might not have liked it too much on the first on the first uh, first time I rewatched it. Um, I think what I remembered from my childhood was the VHS artwork that accompanied Terrorvision. I knew for a fact that I'd seen the film, but what I remembered was something that was much more serious and gory than I'd watched this time around. Now, obviously as a young boy of about eight years old, it was kind of the idea of the big nasty monsters coming out of the TV that stayed with me. It looked like a monster! There's no such thing as monsters, boy! But it was only when I came to rewatch it as an adult for the for for the first time that I looked at it in a in a way that or in the way that it probably should be looked at, uh, which is as a comedy. Um, so, and, and, and a, a comedy and a pastiche to, to, to sort of 1950s cinema, really, to be honest with you. Uh, so, I mean, first and foremost, I need to get this out in the open. Terrorvision is an incredibly silly movie. 
uh, and you need to know that going into it. Um, it's pretty much all shot in one location, which is that of the Futterman's house, uh, which is uh, a family uh, who are installing a, a satellite system um, and all hell breaks loose, as, as I as, as appears to be turning into my catchphrase. Um, but yeah, it's all kind of shot in that one location, and I think that's probably clear... Uh, it's probably clear that that's because they wanted to spend more money on the creature, creature effects, um, which is understandable. Um, so what you've got really is is this whole thing going on in this house, the odd little bits of sort of creature moments, and then there's bits in between that are filled out with what are incredibly cartoony characters. Uh, so as I mentioned in the blurb, the basic premise is we have a fairly well-to-do family, uh, there's a kind of doofus dad, there's a cougar mum, uh, there's an MTV-obsessed teenage daughter, and then there's a granddad and a grandson who both have a sort of deep love for all things military, uh, as well as a sort of unhealthy paranoia about invading enemy forces. Uh, so the dad, the doofus dad, uh, is trying to install a new satellite TV system uh, with very little help from the guy who sold it him um, and he's kind of banging it together haphazardly and then the the satellite dish uh, gets struck by lightning and it beams an alien presence of some sort into the house via the television. Damn, I hate these do-it-yourself 100s. Now, as I say, the action is kind of padded out with these cartoonish performances uh, by the whole family and a, support, a supporting cast of, of characters around them, um, particularly in the first third of the film. Uh, now, we find out that the teenage daughter is dating a hair metal numbskull, and uh, the teenage daughter is a little bit annoying on occasion, I have to admit, and the the hair metal numbskull that she's going out with is a little bit of sort of comic relief. Um, he's kind of typically clad entirely in leather and studs, and obviously... Way back in the 1980s, that was most parents' idea of a nightmare. You know, long before everybody realised that that kids who like heavy metal are actually um, are actually nicer and more pleasant than uh, than kids who like anything else. Um, and we find out that the parents are swingers as well, who are off out for the night to try and lure another couple that they've met through the classified ads into their house and ultimately into their bed. Now. Of course, this is a weird addition to the plot, um, and one that's done primarily to sort of ramp up the uh, the number of characters and introduce more people to kill later on. But what's even stranger is that the parents don't even seem slightly bothered about sharing what it is that they're up to with their kids. Mom, can we use the jacuzzi tonight? Uh, not tonight, baby. Your father and I might be swinging. Good God, woman, you're supposed to be a mother, and not only that but they have the most obscene artwork and statues hanging around this gaudy pink and blue uh, family mansion of theirs, which they keep referring to as the Pleasure Zone. It's it's disgraceful. I mean, like, the walls of the house deserve a separate rating to the actual 15 rating that's been given to the film. Uh, anyway, this, the swinging stuff sort of lends itself to a good... 20 minutes or so, I'd say, of innuendo and, and will-they-won't-they they teasing about whether or not uh, there'll be some group sex between these two couples, the mum and dad and the two people that they've met through the classifieds. Ultimately, though, you don't really get anything exciting. Um, there's certainly not very much skin, apart from the stuff that's all over the walls. 
Um, and what you do get is a sort of a, a, a ditzy blonde teenage woman who happens to be wearing a bathing suit under her dress, uh, who, who dives into the uh, the inevitable indoor pool that the father has. Um, you get little bits of reference to the pleasure zone, this and babe that, and um, and also there's a dash of of xenophobic, homophobic stuff about men from Greece. Hey, Raquel, has there been some uh, misunderstanding? What do you mean? Well, I'm Greek, you know. Oh, of course you're Greek. It said so on the classifieds. Oh, don't worry. We're not prejudiced. No, no, no. You don't understand. I am into Greek. Greek culture. I like boys. Really? Okay. Well, but it's not all that bad, if I'm honest. Um, at the heart of Terrorvision, there are some interesting ideas that you can take on board uh, if you want to. Um, obviously the film is kind of heavily influenced by 1950s B-movies, as I've said, and the sort of fear of US invasion. Uh, but rather than go with the sort of science running amok type of thing or the nuclear testing, it uses something that's a lot closer to 1980s culture and something that I kind of remember very clearly being an issue around the time. Um, obviously, around the 1980s, we had the, the moral panic over the video nasties, but there was also a lot of questions being raised about what was on TV and, and you know, the dangerous garbage that we should all be aware of, all the sex and the violence and the, you know, inviting this stuff into your home. Um, now, to just, just to put that into to context, because it is slightly different between the US and the UK, back in the early to mid-1980s, satellite TV was something to be truly, truly envied, uh, particularly in the UK. Um, I think the equivalent in the US would probably be, you know, certain people that you know, certain people that you knew had cable TV and that was kind of a big deal in the 1980s. Uh, but in the UK, Britain had only recently gotten a fourth channel, um, which I remember launching very, very clearly. I mean, I can remember as a child breakfast TV being a big deal the fact that there was actually uh, a TV show with presenters on first thing in the morning I, I remember the launch of that being a big deal um, and if you wanted anything more than the the four channels that you had um, and, and I should mention this was also back in back at a time where TV wasn't 24 hours it switched off at the end of the night if you wanted any more than that you had to pay an arm and a leg for what was then the first iteration of Sky TV and something which was called BSB, which stood for British Broadcasting something or other, um, which was a company that um, that Sky would eventually buy out and become B Sky B. Um, so yeah, I mean back then satellite was something that not many people had, um, and it was very expensive and it was you know something to be to absolutely be envied. It was something that the Joneses had that you would you know you would you would hope for but um certainly growing up in the um in in a working class family that was not something that was ever an option for us um as the decade went on i had one or two friends and there was one family member in particular that they could just about afford it and i remember very clearly every time that you went round to their house it always felt like they were watching something awesome on their satellite tv get ready you guys this baby is going to open a whole new dimension 
in television pleasure. Oh, boy. Oh, Stanley, I'm so excited. There was WWF Wrestling, there was MTV, there was Sky Movies showing films that had only been out in cinemas just five or six short years earlier. It was like a wet dream to a kid like me. Now, one thing I always remember was just how it would only take a very short amount of time for these particular friends and family members to get pretty sick uh, of, of their satellite TV. So when they first got it, it was the greatest thing ever, and they'd be thumbing through all the channels and desperate to show you all the stuff that they had. But you go around maybe a month or two later, all of a sudden they're a little bit quieter about all these extra channels. So you go around and you're all like, put MTV on, or can you record the Royal Rumble for me or something? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, whatever. They, you know, they complete, they had completely lost interest in satellite TV. Um, and the truth of the matter is, and this was something that we would all ultimately learn when, when Sky TV got cheap enough, more TV channels doesn't necessarily mean more entertainment. And that's kind of the message, um, or a combination of the, a couple of the messages that I've mentioned that's at the heart of, of television. Be careful what you wish for, because you might just get dangerous rubbish dumped in your living room. People of Earth, please heed my warning. A terrible accident has occurred. I am Pluton, sanitation captain of the planet Pluton. A stray energy beam containing garbage from my substation may be headed for your solar system and could possibly result in the total annihilation of your species. I'm so terribly sorry for the inconvenience. So the last act of the film focuses a bit more on the beast itself and how like MTV and, and disposable modern entertainment, the kids are really the only ones who can understand it. So that's when it sort of delves into the area that I mentioned on the blurb, you know, where they can, they kind of treat this monster as a pet and they start to feed it and can they trust it and stuff like that. Um, there is an Elvira-style character who is involved in the plot who becomes a little bit more uh, involved in the plot. And... You know, ultimately, at this point, it gets even sillier, to be honest with you. Um, so just to sum up, really, I'll keep this review short, because obviously I'm uh, speaking very shortly to uh, to the director. Television is an absolute curiosity, and, and if you are a lover of, of this kind of fare, of which, obviously, I absolutely am one, then it's easy to see why people have a great fondness for it. Um, and it's it's certainly something that I think on both watchings, maybe I didn't get, I, I didn't, I wasn't in the right frame of mind for it the first time. I think I was the second time and I enjoyed it a little bit more. It certainly is fun. Uh, but as an example of sort of 80s genre comedies, it, it doesn't really hold a candle to, to some of the other stuff. So, you know, in terms of... Um, Maybe stuff like Killer Clowns or uh, or Chopping Mall, stuff that's got a sort of like a dark sense of humour. I don't think it's right up there for me. Um, as I say, though, it is a little bit of fun. Uh, it's not one that I'll revisit too many times in the future. However, I know people are fans of it. And uh, with a Blu-ray on the way, um, maybe a few more people check it out. <laughs> 
Hi, I'm John Water. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wings Hauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. Cinema's been around for over 100 years. Its history is long and varied. Each film has a story to tell, and the 15-Minute Movie Podcast covers the history of cinema through the actors, writers, directors, producers, and themes. Each episode, you'll find out about the history of movies in just 15 minutes. Go to 15mmp.com or check it out on Stitcher, iTunes, or Miro. Okay, so it's been a pretty gooey episode so far, but as I clean up the residue from some of the movies we've covered on this month's show, uh, I'm delighted to be able to say that I'm joined by the director of 1986's Terrorvision, Mr. Ted Nicolo, is with me. Hi, Ted. Hey, Noel, how's it going there? Not too bad, not too bad. And uh, first of all, I just, just want to say thanks for, uh, for joining me on Adventures in VHS. Hey, my pleasure. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been 26 years, um, or over 26 years in fact, since uh, Terrorvision was, uh, was released into the world, and we're, we're still, still talking about it. So, um, I mean, obviously you've worked on plenty of other movies since then, but I'm wondering how do you, how do you think of the film when you look back on it? You know, uh, I really loved the film Terrorvision, and I really loved the experience of making it. Uh, it was a huge disappointment at the time when it got released and was met with uh, pretty much universally terrible reviews uh, and kind of a very split audience of people that either loved it or hated it. Uh, and so at the time, I was very heartbroken over the fate of the film. But as the years went on and I kept meeting people who you know, were recently introduced to the film and young people who loved the film, uh, it made me realize that maybe it was just a little too weird and in uh, weird for its time, but that the humor of it really uh, has lasted in the kind of rewatchability of the film. So I've ended up being you know, pretty pleased with its cult status. Absolutely. Well, you've kind of touched on it there a little bit, and, and obviously how, how I came to... I was always kind of intending to get round to television on the podcast anyway, but I recently ran a poll on my website asking people what films they wanted me to cover. Um, and along with 1988's The Blob, uh, television came out on top. So I'm wondering what, what specifically do you think it is about this movie and movies like The Blob that kind of... That, that achieve cult status and that, that end up being so memorable for people and, and sort of special in, in their hearts when they look back on it as something that they grew up with? What is it that, that really sort of captures the imagination and lasts? I guess it must have something to do with capturing a kind of a nightmarish um, surreality in, in its um, kind of approach to the world of the people that are getting attacked by the creatures. Uh, the blob was more naturalistic as i recall you know leading up to the blobs attack so i don't know man it's it's kind of a mystery to me what people end up loving 
I can tell, you know, when I when I set out to make television, I really wanted to make a movie that would kind of uh, seem like a nightmare to like nine to twelve year old kids who might happen to watch it. And so maybe it's got that quality that just kind of gets into your brain and it's so odd you cannot shake it. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I mean, I know when I saw it, I was probably uh, legally too young to see it, but uh, you know, it's it's that it's those type of movies that stick with you at that age. I certainly certainly agree with that. Um, in terms of the the film itself, more, more more directly, it does. It is a film that seems to sort of a bit like the Blob in, in that respect. Ooze a sort of nineteen fifties B movie sensibility to it, and. I was wondering, was that intentional, or, or does that inco- does that come from some of your influences growing up? Growing up, were you a fan of of genre films as a kid, and did it just bleed into the script that you were writing for television? Yeah, actually, I loved science fiction and horror films as I was when I was a kid. My dad used to take me every Saturday afternoon to see kind of the, the classic nineteen fifties science fiction films, and. Um, there were two films that I saw when I was a kid that kind of ended up haunting me uh, until, you know, I would catch fragments of them on television and they haunted me in the same way. And I wanted television to kind of have that quality, like I said, that was like you, you'd see it and you'd, it would just be like something that you'd never seen before. And for me, those two films were um, the original Invaders from Mars, uh, directed by William Cameron Menzies, and also... Uh, the Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T, which was based on a Doctor Seuss book, and both of those films had a very expressionistic uh, production design and very paranoid kind of vision from the point of view of a child. And so that's kind of what I set out to do with Terrorvision was create a movie that would just catch your attention and haunt you. Absolutely, and and you've mentioned already as well. It, it is a film that does have a, a very um, I'd call it a very cheeky sense of humour, um, <laughs> but somehow I remembered it as as being more serious, and I think that's something that I've put down to the sort of rather imposing front cover of the video. Um, so, like, was the film always intended to to have such a sort of comic sensibility, or did the did the material just lend itself to that as as you're making it? Um, actually, you know, I had worked for Charles Band, who was the producer, executive producer of Terravision, uh, as an editor for a few years before I got the chance to make Terravision. And so I knew the basic production uh, obstacles and difficulties that you'd encounter on a Charles Band film. Yeah. And I knew the monster designer, John Beekler, and his strengths and weaknesses as a creature effects guy. And when Charlie, basically back in those days, Charlie would come up with a poster, and from that poster you would uh, retrofit a movie and a screenplay. Um, And so when Charlie showed me the picture and I realized that John Beekler was doing the effects and I knew it was going to be a very low-budget and tight shooting schedule, you know, I said, Charlie, can I make it kind of a horror comedy? And uh, he said, yes. And I didn't realize at the time what a difficult genre that is really to pull off. Um, but luckily I got, our casting was inspired, I think, you know, in that we were able to get such a great comic cast. So they they kind of took it, took what was in the script, and the dialogue is basically all scripted, but they kind of took it to another dimension. Yeah. 
So I mean, obviously the, the the comedy is is a great element of the of the film and and helps it sort of retain um, its charm all these years later. But I, th- I think for me, one of the one of the key things from a movie like this is is uh, the use of prosthetic effects that you've you've kind of mentioned there. And I'm just wondering how you feel effects have changed over the years. Uh, you know, as a filmmaker now, do you find the situation is better or worse or or is it just different uh, what you know in terms of what people expect and what you can get away with yeah i think what people expect now is you know vastly more expensive vastly more complicated than you know what you were able to achieve back in the 80s with just prosthetics and um, makeup effects uh and you know i don't i, I prefer watching movies of, you know, that, that you have to go, how in the hell yeah. do they accomplish that? Rather than knowing that every frame of a film is just a vast painting and animated picture. So, um, but CG effects certainly have their place and they can take you to worlds and things that you can't possibly achieve on set. So, I mean, it's, uh, I have mixed feelings, you know, I've never had a big enough budget to completely go crazy with visual effects. But I I do appreciate them when I watch them in movies. So is there is there one sort of effect that that you can recall from the film, or one specific sequence that proved probably to be to be maybe the most tricky or the most difficult to to, to realize as you wanted it? Yeah, I think probably two two scenes actually. One where uh, the hungry beast chases the kids uh, just before they you know uh, OD holds out his hand. Uh, that scene, just moving that creature was, yeah. you know, <laughs> like a task for, you know, four or five people uh, and to move him and yet keep the people inside the creature kind of continuing to animate him was just a ridiculous uh, thing. And then trying to create the effect that he was sucking so hard he could suck things into his mouth. Uh, you know, all that's done with strings and and reverse action and stuff like that, that, that uh, with CG you could have created a much more uh, realistic effect and also the final scene where he blows out the wall and sucks Sherman into him that was you know just a giant rigging of a big wooden contraption that kind of flew Sherman to the creature so there's a lot of things that you know with with green screen and um, CG we could have you know made a lot more real but then it might have lost kind of its tacky charm too I mean, obviously, this is a, a VHS-related show that I do here, and one of the names uh, that comes up time and time again um, is is one that you've already mentioned, which is uh, is that of Charles Band. Um, now, you've you've worked with Band a number of times through your career. Can you tell us a little bit about how the relationship started and and what he's like as a producer? Yeah, Charlie loves movies, uh, and that was kind of his biggest charm. Uh, he. I started um, as an editor for him on the film Tourist Trap uh, very shortly after I came out to Los Angeles from Texas. And uh, at the time, he seemed like a very aloof and a little bit um, uh, intimidating character just because I was young and starting out and he was uh, already producing, directing movies. And it was always a hassle to get your paycheck at the end of every week and he was always bouncing checks and so uh, there was that difficulty in the early years Um, and but after editing one film for him and then I kind of doctor 
edited a film called uh, The Daytime Ended. And pretty soon, Charlie liked my editing enough that I was editing the, the movies that he directed. And he became more human to me and a lot friendlier. And basically, the, the problem of getting your paycheck on time never ended throughout all those years. But um, as, you know, when he gave me the opportunity to, to direct, I was so happy. Um, that, and then over the years after, I got, you know, a lot of the choicest movies through Empire and Full Moon. Uh, and, and throughout all of that, even when he was, you know, you knew what you were getting into with Charlie and you knew the budgets was going to be hard and you knew the film stock might not arrive on time if you were on location. But his love of just the process of making movies kind of made him charming enough and he's a great great salesman and can kind of talk people into just about anything so uh you know it was actually a really pleasurable place to work especially when it became like the film factory of uh, full moon so I actually spoke uh, a while back uh, to another associate of, of Charles Band, uh, which was the director, David Dakota. Yeah. Um, and we were discussing his 1987 movie, Creepazoids, um, and he talked a little bit about how VHS and home video had really opened up Hollywood to people like him and like Charles Band, um, and how all of a sudden the demand for film <laughs> content had changed what had been a very closed-off world until then. Is that something that you noticed, and, and is that something that you know was obviously affected by by Charles Band bringing you into to the stuff that he did? Yeah, I think actually Charlie is the person who kind of uh, was visionary enough to realize that home video was going to be a big thing yeah. because yeah. he really started like the first home video distribution company that I ever heard of, and the the way that it made movies accessible to people and cheap movies kind of even more accessible because at the time the the studios were basically taking over B movies and making, you know, huge budgeted science fiction and horror films. So it was kind of the only place for B movies to go. Um, and I really do credit Charlie with that. So, uh, I mean, obviously um, Charles Band has, has, is, is still going on and the the industry has has changed a lot since then um in the uk very recently we saw the demise of one major high street music and video retailer we also lost blockbuster video to bankruptcy um with so much going on in streaming and 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 home sort of video on demand and stuff like that how is that affect how do you feel that's affected the the industry and how you distribute the the movies that you make uh, I think it's been a real blow to the industry. It's been a blow to the studios, kind of the um, the fall off on demand for DVDs. But I also feel like it's a time of transition that will settle itself out in another few years, uh, whereby you know there'll be greater and greater access to distribution through various means for film, you know, young filmmakers and low budget filmmakers. So I think it's a it's a real time of difficulty in a lot of ways, and but I think it's going to kind of get better as time goes on. So I mean, it's 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 obviously an industry that is kind of working for you at the moment because you are you are still out there and busy and directing. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what it is you're up to at the moment and what type of things we can expect to see maybe in the future? 
Yeah, for the last few years, you know, I've gotten to direct a movie every few years. Uh, I did a film in Italy called The Etruscan Mask that was kind of a supernatural thriller. Uh, didn't get distributed outside of Italy, though, I think. Um, the uh, And then I was making, uh, like, kind of behind-the-scenes documentaries for Disney, like, classic animated films in their re-releases and kind of got swept up into this documentary world for a while. I'm uh, just finishing post-production on a very odd movie for me, given my background, um, a movie about a yoga and meditation community in Northern California. Um and I've got a new screenplay, another supernatural thriller that I'm just finishing up uh, in hopes of kind of finding the financing for it. Excellent. So um, I'll, I'll be I'll be killed if if I don't ask. I don't suppose there's any chance of a Terrorvision ch- two coming at any point. <laughs> well, you know, right uh, this month uh, the Terrorvision Blu-ray is yeah. about to be released. And so let's see what happens. You know, in in my fantasy world, there are like a lot of 30 to 40 year old film executives out there who have some residual love for that film from their childhood. Uh, I think uh, it it would be pretty awesome to redo Terrorvision with a bigger budget. Well, they're always looking to remake something, so uh, (laughs) Terrorvision can't be too far away. Uh, well, all that remains for me to, to do then is, is say thanks again, uh, Ted, for, for agreeing to take time out of your uh, schedule to talk to me today. And, uh, and thanks very much for joining me. Hey, thank you, Noel, for spreading the word of Terrorvision. Um, everybody turn your friends on to it. You are so beautiful. How about a quickie? Huh? A little aperitif. Eh? Little song. Eh? So just to finish out the show, then it's great to be able to say that there's uh, a bit of feedback for me to read out. This is from Chris Ward. Chris is a, a big supporter of the show and um, somebody I speak to frequently on Twitter. So thank you very much, Chris. Uh, and Chris writes, Hey Noel, just thought it was about time I put fingers to keyboard to drop you a line about adventures in VHS. It might sound a bit Steve Wright in the afternoon, but the phrase, love the show, does really spring to mind. I think we're around the same age, and our experiences of growing up with VHS and the stories about our respective independent rental shops are also pretty similar. So it's nice to know I'm not the only one who hankers for those days during the summer holidays back in the 1980s when the shelves of our local video stores were a veritable goldmine of movie-watching pleasure and the shop acted as a babysitter while my mum went and did the shopping. The choices of films you've made so far have been excellent and I can't wait for the book to come out. Of particular interest were Extro, Kindred, Ghoulies, Creepazoids and Class of Newcomb High as these were films that were part of my formative years. The latter title being so as I got to interview Lloyd Kaufman around the same time regarding the film's Blu-ray release. I'm not sure what other films you have in mind, but I'm hoping there will be plenty more obscure horror action films to trawl through. I'm guessing slash hoping titles such as Witchboard, House, Brain Damage, Reanimator, Ninja 3, The Domination, Class of 1999 and The Stuff, and my personal favourite, Demons. I believe you're covering The Blob next. That was one of my rentals when I was about 12, and I get the feeling I may have rented it along with Hellbound Hellraiser 2. My parents were fairly liberal, but I haven't seen it since then. 
I do actually have an unwatched DVD copy somewhere amongst my vast collection, so I'll have to dig it out and give it a revisit. Anyway, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on it while I reminisce about my old VHS collection and how I wish I didn't sell it. I had to. Financial necessity at the time. Keep on doing what you're doing. Regards, Chris Ward. Uh, and Chris's, uh, Chris's website is onemetal.com if you want to check that out. Uh, cheers, Chris. Um, yeah, I'd, it, it does sound we're about the same, like we're about the same age, actually. And I do remember spending hours. It wasn't necessarily, for me, it wasn't necessarily being babysat by the, uh, by the video store, really, um, while my mum was shopping. It was basically, my mum and dad sort of worked during the summer. Well, my mum and dad sort of were full, in full-time employment and I kind of was just left to my own devices as a kid, really. So there just wasn't anything for me to do apart from go to the, the video store. And, you know, I had absolutely no problem with that. Um, I'm, I'm glad it was there to, to nurture me in the way that it did. So I guess, yeah, I guess maybe it is babysitting me in a way. Um, but, you know, I think it was more a case of just my mum and dad left me the membership card and a little bit of money on the side and went, look, just go get something to watch and entertain yourself. I'm pretty sure they had no idea the kind of stuff I was watching, but there you go. Um so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you've enjoyed uh, the the show so far and, and some of the movies you mentioned there. I think out of all of those, I think I enjoyed the extra episode the most myself in terms of doing it because I extra kind of blindsided me. I, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to and there was stuff in there that I wasn't really expecting and obviously speaking to the director was just was just fantastic because he's, he's such a great guy. Um yeah, so I think that's probably, if I had to pick one of my favourite episodes so far, it'd probably be that, to, to, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, yeah, um, The Blob is what we, we covered, um, and I hope you enjoyed uh, revisiting it if you if you had to, to, if you managed to sort of squeeze, squeeze that in in time for the show. And uh, yeah, I too reminisce about the VHS collection that I sold. I put up a post on the... Uh, on the website recently about sort of I remember probably I can't remember how many years ago it was now but I was moving house and I had a load of old ex rental tapes uh, stuff like Chopping Mall Cutting Class um, a whole f- fucking load of them Aerobicide I really wish I still had Aerobicide um, and we were moving house and I just figured well I'm never going to watch these ever again and the only reason I bought them is because they were 50p each and I was studying horror movies at university at the time and I just chucked them all in a skip and Oh, fuck, I rue that day. So, yeah, I too harbour some uh, some serious uh, regrets about those uh, those particular instances too. So, cheers, Chris. Cheers for writing in, and I think that's a great way to end the show. Uh, that was episode eight of Adventures in VHS. Um, episode nine will probably be. Um, around uh, late February, I think. Um, there's a possibility that I may need I may need to take a break for for a short period because deadlines with the book and everything I need to to get that up and running. So um, I will keep you posted. Follow me on Twitter uh, via at filmrant and I'll keep you posted about what's going on there. You can head to the uh, the Facebook page as well, um, which is just search for Adventures in VHS on Facebook or Filmrant on Facebook, and you'll find me there. Um, but yeah, that's about it. 
keep an eye on filmround.co.uk. The exclusive chapters for both the movies that I've covered today will be on there. Uh, you can also find me over at the 35mm Heroes podcast if you just need to listen to my fucking horrible Mancunian rasping voice a little bit more. Um, and you can also go out and download the Watch Your Damage podcast, which is an 80s podcast that I do with Mike from Chinstroker vs. Punter. And uh, yeah, I think that's all the housekeeping done. That was Adventures in VHS episode 8. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. And uh, I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Hey,